This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We conducted a civic experiment, and as with most good things in life, there was food. Six Coloradans from across the political spectrum sat around a table last week to eat a hearty soup and sourdough bread and to talk about their lives, with the eventual goal, because they'll be back, of finding common ground in a country that feels as divided as ever. We call this experiment Breaking Bread. Half the group, the three women gathered at our offices, voted for Donald Trump in the presidential election. My name's Annette, and I'm from Pueblo. Born and raised there, but I have lived in a lot of different places. I raised six kids of my own, and I've got five grandkids that I'm raising and foster kids. That's Annette Gonzalez. She lives in public housing in Pueblo. She sits across the table from Sandy Russell, whom we met at a Trump campaign rally. She lives south of Denver in Palmer Lake and is 71, which she points out makes her the oldest. I feel like the mother of the group. (laughs) I guess you call me global. I've lived all over the world by virtue of career and uh, as a military bride. My name is Karina Gaylord, and I... uh... I'm a Colorado native. I grew up in Lakewood. And Gaylord now lives in Arvada with her husband and two kids. She does consulting work for small businesses. Her support of President Trump led to a lot of tension with her brother, Brian Pacini, who also came to break bread. He voted for Hillary Clinton. I grew up in uh, Lakewood, obviously with my sister, uh, moved to Denver. My name's Adam. I was born and raised uh, in Denver in the southeast part of town. And that's Adam Brock, who started a nonprofit to help get healthy food to people in a low-income neighborhood in North Denver called Illyria Swansea. Finally, there's Mehdi Khan of Aurora. He voted green. I'm born and raised in California. I grew up in the Bay Area. Moved out here in 2013 to Colorado. I would say my favorite hobby is probably cooking. Love cooking. At which point I had to ask. What do you think of the soup? It's wonderful. Okay. I love the cilantro in it. It's really good. So at our gathering, the three women voted for Trump. The men did not. I asked them why they agreed to come, what they hoped to get out of it. Here again is Mehdi Khan. I love politics and I love talking. And we live in strange times, to say the least. And if given an opportunity to reach out to other people and hear different points of view and impart my perspective, maybe I can change somebody's point of view or I'll change mine. I'm really open to that as well. The best example is if, you know, two people are fighting... You go to one person, and they'll tell you one thing, and you'll be like, oh, my God, this other person's just terrible. But then you'll go to the other person, and then they'll give you their perspective. So you realize the truth is somewhere in between. Do you think that's what's going on in the country right now to some extent? Oh, yes. Yes, very much so. Although, I don't know about our dear president. Uh, there can be an excuses for him. <laughs> There's a lot the of wacky open. dog going on. <laughs> he opened the door. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the political door has been open, Betty, that's for sure. I'm a political guy, so. <laughs> Adam Brock, again, who voted for Clinton, chimed in. Well, in my life, there's, I, I am around a, a lot of different kinds of people. Um, they all share very similar political views. And so it's always baffled me that there's this whole other side of the country that I just seem to not be able to connect with. And so... I've been craving more and more to to have those kinds of conversations, just to be able to listen, to understand where folks are at, why they have made the choices they have that, on the surface, feel so different from mine, but maybe aren't really. Are you in a bubble, Adam, do you think? I think I am. Yeah, I think that's safe to say. Um, I mean, I've lived in cities pretty much my whole life, like in the city city, not, not the suburbs, and 
it's not like all the people I see every day look exactly like me or talk exactly like me, but I think there's certain things that we all share in cities that aren't shared by people in a lot of the rest of the country. Karina, how about you? My brother dragged me here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I guess I was, you know, mostly curious. I think since the election, that was an interesting time last fall. Um, I don't think I've ever seen anything so heated amongst people. Did you see that in your own life, or do you just mean, like, nationally? (laughs) But I know a lot of other people that didn't want to be around their families or friends Mm -hmm. that were Trump supporters, you know, and I thought, you know, that is really sad that we've gotten to the point where... You know, we can't even be around each other just because of what we voted for. I like great discussions about politics. What I don't like is when, you know, people get too upset, where there's, you know, name-calling and friendships lost and life's too short for that. How does this affect your relationship with your brother, Ryan? Well, I mean, it, it was definitely challenging, I would say, you know. But it's our beliefs. It's not about our relationship. If coming to this means that you know, we can have good discussions again about politics, and, you know, I'm all for that. I asked Karina's brother, Brian Pacini, how politics affected his relationship with his sister. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a strain. It was kind of odd as well, because, you know, at the, like, family get-togethers at the dinner table, and we get in, you know, discussions, and, and discussions are great. They can be fine and stuff, but they, they did get very heated. I was the only one who voted for Clinton, so it was Things got heated not just between me and my sister and my brother-in-law, but also with my, you know, my parents, our parents. And so what, what was seemed to be a lot different about this election and this kind of cycle is, you know, we can have a lot of differences in policies and a lot of agreements. Like there's a lot of things on the right that I agree with, you know, as far as gun rights and pro-Israel and stuff like that. But it, to me, it became more of an issue of like ethics and, and just kind of way he, he talked and way he made things or the words he said. That was kind of jarring for me. You know, if it was for McCain or for Romney or somebody like that, it wasn't that big of a deal. But to have somebody so unethical be supported, and they weren't necessarily like big Trump supporters, but they obviously voted for Trump. Annette, why did you agree to come? I like to be involved. I like to hear other people's opinions and work things out. And like she said, when people start getting upset and they don't control themselves, they forget they're grown-ups, and then you go into losing relationships and things like that, we had that in my family. Uh, Around we, the election? Yes. My sister ended up in the emergency room. Uh, I thought she was having a heart attack, and it was a panic attack because we were having a discussion. Mm -hmm. And so there went Thanksgiving (laughs) and Christmas and New Year's. She still doesn't talk to me because I'm a Trump supporter. (laughs) You know, it is what it is. You know, you you can't get him out of there now. He's already there. Now we've got to deal with it. And, boy, she's like, I ain't dealing with it. Okay, well, I'll go be a grown-up over here, and we're going to see what he's going to do. I asked the group if, like Adam Brock, they felt they lived in a bubble. Here's Brian Pacini. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, even geographically, I don't live in a rural area. I don't, I, I'm not going through some of the struggles that people that might have voted for Trump have, are going through and such. So I think that's somewhat um, of a bubble. You know, there's a lot of talk like online about like Facebook and other social media kind of it builds that. But I, I also think, you know, I am friends with a lot of people on Facebook that are a part of different political views. And I see the things that they like and see the things that they post. So I, in a way, that does open us up to other kind of views. We seek out people that feel and live and act and talk the same way we do. Sandy Russell, the Trump supporter who's in a military family, asked exactly what I meant by a bubble. Brian Pacini answered for me. If you're all around people that just tell you what you kind of already believe in, you're basically in a bubble that kind of directs your thoughts and ways. You know, I can look at things that Trump's saying and sometimes, you know, it's like, you know, well, that's actually not that bad. I, I agree with that. I, you know, or like I said, I, there's conservative views that I hold. 
It wasn't long before the subject of health care came up when Vecini asked Pueblo grandmother and foster mother Annette Gonzalez why she supported Trump. Like, you know, with your background, with your, you know, current situation of fostering kids and grandkids, and, you know, it seems like more liberal or democratic views on, like, health care. You know. I'm surprised, but I'm more conservative. Sure, but, but it seems like, I mean, from my perspective, somebody like Trump is, is there to help rich people, right? Health yes, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I actually live in the projects in Pueblo. But I'm finding a lot of people give up their personal responsibility, or they never pick it up to start with. So they're the ones leaning on the system. They're the ones that are, sure. well, I don't have to work if, if welfare is going to give me food stamps and, and money and whatever. I went to college twice while I had all these kids. One of the times, I was a single mom with five kids, and I graduated top of my class as a paralegal. That didn't go very far, but uh, it opened my eyes to, I don't have to live on the system. I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to get a job. Yeah, I'm not you know, talking about like taking advantage of welfare or looking for entitlements, but even just like better health care. Like where, I mean, having five kids, I mean, it's, health care is very expensive for mm-hmm. us with two right. kids and companies that are subsidizing it. I, I, I can't imagine, mm-hmm. or just even like how, when they're in college age, how would you afford five kids going to an expensive college, school? You yeah. know, that, that sort of thing. I mean, honestly, we live in reality. None of my kids are going to make it to college. That's just all there is to it. They're, you know, 50000 bucks a kid, you know, the three-year-old in 15 years. How much more is that going to be? So yeah, I talk to my kids about going to um, Botech schools. Learn an actual craft, you know, learn something you can learn in two years. But to me, I think there's a lot of bad ideas in big colleges. I think there's a lot of people out there I don't want my grandkids exposed to. I would love to encourage my children and grandchildren but I don't see building up a dream and helping them to, to dream this dream all their lives only to get to 18 years old, graduated high school, and have no way of getting to college. Mehdi Khan, who engineers dams, said he disagreed that college isn't an option if you're poor. I went to college. I paid for myself. I came from a single-parent household. You know, we really struggled. And when you go to college, that's the place where you truly find yourself. You're exposed to so many different opinions. I mean, as a Muslim in college, we were dealing with so many different views. I mean, the Davis College, I mean, UC Davis, Davis College Republicans were inviting very controversial speakers. And, you know, that's where you come across those types of views. Can I just draw a little bit on what Brian was asking, just to go back to the fundamental point? So from Brian's perspective, there are aspects of your life, Annette, that would lead him to become a liberal and that you lead you to support President Trump. What, what is it about your life that led you to vote to support Trump for him? Well, I had a really nasty taste in my mouth when I first introduced him and I told my kids sitting around the living room, everybody was like, Hell, there's no way he'll ever be president. I said, you're looking at your next president. I just had a feeling. And then as things progressed and he just kept getting over every hump and no matter how bad it, the publicity was or what he'd said in the bus or whatever, he just kept moving forward. Then once he got in there, everybody calmed down. He kicked butt, I thought, in the first hundred days. He jumped out there to at least try to do what he promised. He ain't doing it right. He's like riding a bicycle through you know, the church there, with, <laughs> trying not to drop the holy water, and he don't know how to pedal. He doesn't. Speak politics. <laughs> right, exactly. And maybe that's exactly what we needed, 
with somebody that wasn't a politician. It was, he's a businessman. America, United States of America, is a business corporation. Anybody who thinks anything else is wrong. We present ourselves to the world globally with all of our deals and things. Trump knows how to make deals. He knows how to fix things. Let's see. He's not perfect. I don't like some of his cabinet choices. I don't like some of his firings. That Comey thing's driving me crazy. I've about heard enough of that. Okay, so he got fired. BFD, get somebody else. Besides the momentum that Trump had, what is it about your life? Help, help Brian life? understand what it is about your life that Absolutely led to Absolutely the... nothing. There's no connection there because I feel that he doesn't see me at all. And, and people in my situation, they don't see us. That 1% don't see the rest of us underneath them. And, and, you know, and I'm probably in, what, the last 10%? Yeah. I don't think that I mean anything to Trump. He's not doing a thing for me. Thankfully, I have Medicaid. My grandchildren have Medicaid. Yes, I'm interested in what's going on with that kind of stuff, but I, I don't know why I connected with him. I just knew that he was going to be able to make some changes. Now, in President Trump's budget proposal and in the House Republican health care plan, there are deep cuts to Medicaid. Medi Khan also honed in on health care. The problem is when you're struggling to pay your rent, you're struggling to pay for your electricity, you can't find a job straight out of college, let's say, your insurance costs $500 a month with the three, dollars $4,000 deductible. Yeah, you should have insurance in an ideal world, yes, but the system is broken. President Trump himself goes to Australian Prime Minister and says, well, your health care is so much better. I mean, it's, it's, it's admitted. Obamacare, I never agreed with Obamacare. It didn't work. And we need to recognize, okay, what is the responsibility of government in, in this? Does the government have the responsibility? Yes, they have the responsibility for national defense. Okay, we admit that. We give them so much of our of the money to NATO. We give so much money to the, uh, you know, the defense industry. Well, what about the right for people to get an education, to have health care? Isn't that something that the government should guarantee if we're giving billions of dollars in aid to other countries? Shouldn't people here have the right to have decent health? I think we all kind of agree that the system's broke. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right? I mean, but I also <laughs> want to add, though, that <laughs> when Obama came in and said, promised us that we could keep our doctors, could keep our insurance, and mandated it, that became a big problem. People I work with are choosing the fine over the premiums because it's cheaper. I'm sorry, I'd like to hear from Adam. We, yeah. Yeah, Adam, we haven't gotten any story. No, I, yes. I, I've been really enjoying listening. That's a lot of why I came, is, is to just hear everybody's perspectives. And I'm feeling my bubble getting popped. But I, I do have a question that's less about specific policies and more about stories. So I've been reading since the election to try and understand some of this stuff, and I read a book called Strangers in Their Own Land that uh, it's a like, liberal journalist from the Bay Area who like, went to rural Louisiana and like, lived with you know, a bunch of families there for a couple of years to understand their political views. And, and I want to ask those of you who are conservative if you resonate with the story that she proposed, which is that like, there's all these people who are like, waiting in line for the American dream to succeed and to thrive and to prosper and to be happy, and that, according to conservatives, big government and liberal programs are basically ways of having different groups of people cut in line to get to the American dream first, while all these other people have been working really hard and, and doing as much as they can, only to see people who might not deserve that cut in line because of you know, welfare programs or things like that. I'm just interested to see if that resonates with you all or if, or if there's a different story that, that you feel... That's well, a little political. I, I disagree <laughs> that there's 
conservatives and there's liberals because you've got so many different yeah. kinds of yeah. things sure. that are going on. Yeah, and liberal on some things and conservative on others. Exactly. And, exactly. Yes, exactly. I'm not in a box. The conversation turned to statements Donald Trump has made that Mehdi Khan, the sole Muslim in the group, felt were racist and had sparked fear in his community. At our mosque, we want to get security, armed security, because we get threats. This is our lives at stake. Mosques are burned down. Mehdi is scared. What do you say, Karina, and he associates that with, with Trump. What do you say, Karina, and what do you say, Sandy, and what do you say, Mehdi, when you hear Mehdi say that about his own mosque? Well, I'm sorry he feels that way. Somebody tried to run over my sister-in-law. Said, get out of this country. That's no, inexcusable. That's, that's not necessary. I, I mean, mean, basic I, civility. I have, a, I have a very good friend who's Muslim, and mm-hmm. um, and I don't wish that on anybody. And as far as what I, I my take is on it, um, I think you've always had people that are racist. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. Uh, we still live in that time. But I I, I don't agree with what they're doing. Um, I hate to say this too, but I think media has kind of spurred on a lot of. Um, of it, you know, to kind of blow things out of proportion. I'm not saying yours was blown out of proportion or any of that. I'd, I'd hate to see anything like that. I think that, you know, the media kind of has stirred it up a little bit. Sandy Russell, a white woman originally from the South, agreed that the media was part of the problem. And she said in a very different way, she's felt like an outsider, too, during the past eight years while Obama was president. I was feeling fearful. What is happening to my country? My country is no longer my country. It's different. It's going in so many different uh, directions. Uh, I didn't know. I didn't know. I felt, I I felt, I I had the feeling, the emotional. Nobody's threatening, calling and threatening your church. Did you feel afraid for your physical safety? Somebody's physically threatening you? Can I ask you, was it just more of a heritage thing? Were having a black president, did that bother you? Oh, no. Oh, goodness, no. No, 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 no. It was the, my country was all the social changes. It was just, I had never lived through anything like that. And I really didn't Mm -hmm. know what was going to happen Mm -hmm. to my uh, Christian religion or what was going to happen to all of the religions, you know, be it, you know, Catholicism, what have you. Because things were, were just changing so quickly and so rapidly and I was fearful so that, and, I, and I had not been fearful before mm-hmm. because I traveled frequently and lived all over and what have you mm-hmm. but I was starting to be uh, fearful because I was a white woman well but doesn't excuse the fact that uh, so I do I, I do kind of understand but the problem is somebody from the majority from the Caucasian majority of this country is empowering groups would they come out under Obama why didn't they come out under Obama why didn't they come out under George Bush, out. what changed? They did come out of, with Obama, though. But it has gotten worse. It's gotten a lot worse. I don't... When, um, when you were talking about the fear you felt under Obama, yeah. like the fear of change and, and where is this country I going? I guess that's what it was. Yeah, and that's exactly how I feel right now, mm-hmm. right? Um, so and I so, can, yeah. so I can relate to you on that. Yeah. But I also recognize that that fear that I'm feeling is a whole different level than what Mehdi is talking about. And I think that is one of the most disturbing things to me about what's changed in the last six months. Because never before has that happened to so many people because of politics. I think you're going to have people that are racist no matter what, and they will take a platform and run with it. You will, like but that. it's the president's duty as a, he safeguards his entire nation to come out and say, 
what you're doing to you know Latino Americans, African Americans, Muslim Americans. He did come names. out and say that. He never well. said to Muslim Americans they have the right to live in this country. They're every part and parcel of this country. They've been here since the slavery times. Nobody, even Obama didn't. I mean, he came out in the end, too little, too late. But that's it's his duty as our leader, as not just the leader of Caucasian Americans, but everybody, to say this such and such group who was just targeted last week, and you know this I, mosque was burned. Yeah, you have the right to be in this country. We're sorry what ha- for what happened to you. Let me visit you. He has this duty to then. If any other group, even Christian churches, synagogues, he has this duty, you know, to make us feel that we're part of this an ex- society. An example that I've heard uh, cited a couple times is after nine eleven when um, President Bush went out of his way to make sure the American public knew that the problem wasn't Islam as a religion. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem was this very, very small minority within Islam that felt like America was the enemy. We're not seeing anything like that out of this administration. In fact, we're seeing the opposite. At one point, Annette Gonzalez addressed Mehdi Khan. I've never met a Muslim. (laughs) I've never talked to one. (laughs) I haven't. You know, Pueblo... We don't have Let's a lot. numbers. There you go. There you go. You know, I mean, yeah, I went to Pueblo County it. High where we had <laughs> one black kid. After dinner, the two did exchange numbers, and Khan invited Gonzalez to tour his mosque. She loved the idea. The group's conversation moved to climate change. There wasn't a lot of agreement there. But there was consensus on an issue Sandy Russell brought up. What would you think about leveling the playing field and everyone we reinstate the draft? And then everyone has an opportunity to have all those benefits that the military have. I think, actually, I think like a draft for young people where it's not just going to the military, but there's AmeriCorps or there's mm-hmm. Peace Corps where they have other options. Because, I mean, not everybody See, wants I, to go. I agree. I, I, think that's, yeah. I think there's a lot of issues with youth. And, and right now, as far as like how expensive college is and, mm-hmm. and the hovering parents and all this, I think like having a, a draft where they can go into some type of service. That would be wonderful because I think we're so far, you know, if you've never experienced that, mm-hmm. and then you see me, you know, that it's all military experience. It's like, how can we possibly understand? Relate to each other, yeah. How can we relate? Is there agreement around this table on the idea of national service? I love that idea, too. I think everybody should have a period in their lives where they do service, and maybe some people do it informally and not as part of a big institution, but I think it's really intriguing. The group also agreed that people's number one duty is to help one another. And everyone said it would be good for them to meet again, despite some of the deep divisions. I wonder what internally you're feeling about just having had a conversation like this at such a poisonous time. It's been great because I can see why folks voted for Trump. You know, I can see their perspective. And the the thing is, all of us at this table have the same goal in mind, which is to make America great again. But how we get there is that's the question, you know. So f- with more talks, we'll maybe drop the labels of socialism. Maybe we'll, you know, <laughs> drop the conservative labels. We'll come to an agreement that, hey, this is how we think our country should move forward. I've really appreciated the opportunity to listen to, to people's viewpoints who are clearly really amazing, wise, incredible people that are totally different from mine. Um, and to understand where they're coming from. It's kind of like a pearl. Yes, I mean, sir, how's a pearl made? It's a little piece that. of sand in there, irritating the crap out of it, <laughs> until it comes out something beautiful. Yeah. So I would hope that something like that would happen here, you know, because I've listened to a couple of opinions that irritate me. But <laughs> that also gets my, my juices flowing, and it gets my creativity going. 
I asked if anyone thought it would be a hopeless exercise to find more common ground on a specific issue, given the current political climate. No way. No. No, I think if any it's of never, us felt that way, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, it's never over till the fat lady sings. <laughs> and I ain't heard the fat lady sing. <laughs> Annette Gonzalez, Adam Brock, Karina Gaylord, her brother Brian Pacini, Sandy Russell, and Mehdi Khan. Six Coloradans with very different political views, breaking bread together at our table. And the plan, as you heard, is to bring them together again to hash out an issue. We're eager to have you as a listener be a part of this. If you have ideas for a topic our group could tackle, or if you'd like to weigh in on the conversation you just heard. Maybe you've broken your own bread with someone whose political views differ. Tell us about it. You can give us a call, 720-358-4029, to share your story. Again, 720-358-4029. Or if you miss that number, you can head to cprnews.org slash connect. This is Colorado Matters. New Horizons, the spacecraft that took the first close-ups of Pluto in 2015, is heading for a new target. It's a billion miles past Pluto. So far away, it's hard to see even with the Hubble telescope. But next week, dozens of astronomers head to Africa and South America to try to catch a glimpse of it from Earth. Doug Duncan will be among them. He directs Boulder's Fisk Planetarium and joins us regularly to talk about space science. And Doug, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. This object is out in the Kuiper Belt. That's the giant band of asteroids past Neptune. And uh, the object's official name is 2014 MU69. What, what a ring to that name. What, what do we know about 2014 MU69? Well, we don't know very much about it, which is one reason it's exciting that we're headed there. Uh, Its size is somewhere between 10 and 30 miles across. That's pretty uncertain. Um, It's, of course, cold, icy and rocky, but we don't know how much of each. Um, And we know its color is kind of reddish brown, and that's about what we know. Why would it be that color? Well, if if listeners remember when we passed Pluto, the color, we started to see all this wonderful detail. And a lot of Pluto was reddish brown. And it turns out that uh, if you take the regular chemicals that you see on, on planets in the outer solar system, methane, for instance, and you expose them to space and let them be bombarded by particles from the sun or cosmic rays, they gradually weather and they turn kind of reddish brown. Hmm. So it's probably space weathering. Space erosion in a way. Yeah. Whereas if you compare that to something fresh like ice, ice is brighter and it's bluish white. So color tells you a little bit, and that's about all we know so far. Okay, so not much. But why did NASA choose MU69 as the the next encounter for New Horizons after that historic flyby of Pluto? I mean, of all of the objects. Yeah, well, you know, it was so uh, exciting and successful, our rendezvous with Pluto, that the people uh, in Colorado who run the Pluto mission asked NASA for some extra money to keep going. And, of course, the spacecraft is keeping going. It's not going to stop. Impressive. There's about 100,000 icy, rocky objects out there at the edge of the solar system. In fact, some of them are about the same size as Pluto. So it would be nice to study more than one. 
So they took a bunch of pictures in the direction that New Horizons is already going, okay. and they found this little one. Hey, look, there, there's one ahead. It's only a billion miles dead ahead. Let's go for it. Honestly, that's how, how they chose it. So it's a bit random. I mean, there's any number that you could have chosen from. Right. Okay. Right. Well, next week, you will join a team of astronomers headed to South America to observe this object. Another team, as we said, is going to Africa. But you won't see MU69. You'll see its shadow, I guess. Um, That's what, right. What is the event you hope to witness? So it's, it's, it's pretty simple. We are fortunate that this, this rocky object billions of miles away is going to pass right in front of a star. And so if you think about it, you know, think about holding your fist out in sunlight, your fist casts a shadow yeah. on the ground. And so as this object moves in front of the star, it's going to cast a shadow on the earth. And if you had enough people that you could determine the size and the shape of the shadow, you would learn how big this object is. Is it 10 miles across or 20 or 30? Is it round? Does it look like a potato? If you have enough people to measure the shadow, you can figure out what it's like. Yeah, I have to say, in all of our conversations, Doug Duncan, one thing that emerges is how much we know about the universe because of shadows cast or the absence of light uh, and what that points us to. That's that's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a way, that kind of reminds me, it feels very historic to go on this expedition because way back in 1919, Astronomers also fanned out to South America and Africa, and they were trying to test this weird prediction of Einstein that space could be bent. I mean, now every other person you meet is interested in black holes, and they know that space can be bent. But in 1919, this was a crazy idea, and Einstein proposed it, and the way to test it was to see if starlight going right past the sun would be deflected or bent, because the sun is the most massive thing near, near us, and it would bend space a little bit. Not like a black hole, but a little bit, according to Einstein. But you can't see stars next to the sun except during an eclipse. So in 1919, astronomers fanned out, and they observed stars near the sun in the eclipse, and they announced... Einstein is right. Huh. I, I have a wonderful clip from the New York Times. It says, the headline is, Men of Science Agog. The <laughs> bending of space is real. I like being agog. I'm not agog enough. So you are following in uh, in Bigfoot steps, I suppose. And, and um, will you be kind of all clumped together in South America and those in Africa or, or fanned out to uh, do these, these We have to be fanned out. Because we don't know um, how big this thing is. And so the trick is you, you could think of us almost spaced like the pickets in a picket fence. We're going to be deployed north to south and this shadow is going to go across us east to west. So some people are going to see the blink. Some people are not going to see the blink. And just by comparing that – then we'll figure out how big the shadow is. Right. And the more measurements you get, the more accurate you can be. So you'll have a sense of size of this object, MU69 in the Kuiper Belt. It's what we're talking about with Doug Duncan, astronomer at Fisk Planetarium. Anything else you can learn from its shadow? Absolutely. What if it blinked twice? Okay. okay. If Pluto went in front of a distant star, which it sometimes does. You, you often get two blinks because Pluto has a moon. I see. Right? Has the moon Charon. So could this little object even farther out than Pluto, does it have a moon? 
In fact, though we don't expect it on something this small, uh, once, decades ago, uh, the planet Neptune passed in front of a star. And right before Neptune made the star blink, there was a flicker. And after Neptune went past the star, there was another flicker. Well, eventually we figured out that was rings. Neptune has little Ooh. rings, not as big as Saturn, but has rings. And if that went, you know, in front of the star, it would flicker. I am amazed that there is a flicker, a perceptible flicker, that is associated just with rings that far out. I mean, it, well, it's it was su- it was subtle enough that astronomers didn't initially realize what it was. Uh-huh. Like, what's this flickering? But then, I think in 1989, Voyager flew past Neptune. And then it took pictures up close and we could see the rings. Okay. And that is likely to happen here because you will have new horizons horizons, flying right by. Right. Going by and and in a way confirming or not what you experienced on Earth. Doug Duncan, I I hate to ask this question, even plant the seed of it, but what happens if it's cloudy when you get to where you're going? Well, that's the reason we're sending a bunch of people to to the wilds of Argentina Mm -hmm. and a bunch of people to uh, Africa. So with a little bit of luck, at least one of the two sites will be clear. So that you're not all under cloud cover. Exactly. And I imagine you're watching the weather pretty closely with that in mind. We are. There's a limited amount you can scurry around, you know, in your uh, – I mean, nowadays we have it easy compared to 1919, right? We'll have SUVs and and uh, we'll even have phones, Yes, you know, so we can talk to each other and see how it's working. Why can't Hubble Telescope just do this for you? This object is so far away that in Hubble, it is just a dot. So you don't – you can't even really measure its size very well. It's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the object itself is so faint, Hubble can barely see it. Mm. But the star it's passing in front of is much brighter. So even though you can't see the thing, when it makes the star blink out, you get a much more reliable observation. Is it true that the moon was also mapped using a method similar to this? Yes, and not only that, by quite a lot of people who are amateur astronomers. Some of them live here in Colorado. So with a backyard-sized telescope and a camera, especially before we went to the moon, amateur astronomers were still watching. This is so fascinating. A star just go not directly behind the moon, but along the edge. Now we know that the edge of the moon has mountains and valleys. And so if you were standing just on the right place of Earth, that the star went along the edge of the moon, it would blink out and on and out and on. And every time it disappeared, that was a mountain. Hmm. And every time you could see it, that was a valley. And that's how they first mapped the edge of the moon before we sent spacecraft there. So again, this process has a long history and one that continues. Speaking of history, uh, how long will New Horizons history be? I mean, isn't it sort of the little you, engine that could? Uh, that's a, that is a good question. It's very impressive. I mean, it's been in space about 10 years. I think this will be its final target. What makes you say that? Um, you know, it just takes a lot of people to run a spacecraft. It's probably built well enough that it will last for many years. Uh, but I'd be pretty happy with two targets. You know, there's this whole region of the solar system out there. Uh, Lots of objects like Pluto. There's one object, Eris, which they thought was bigger than Pluto until an occultation just like this. And they met a bunch of astronomers saw it blank, measured its size, 
and it's a smidgen smaller than Pluto. But there's lots and lots of objects out there. That's the reason why about a dozen years ago, I was one of the people that voted Pluto not to be a planet, you know, off the island kind mm -hmm, of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, because really there's a hundred. It's a whole new class of objects out at the edge of the solar system. And so the more that we can study, I would say the more we learn about those. And I have walked away with the term occultation on today's show. Yes. Blink. It's an occultation. Thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Boulder astronomer Doug Duncan heads to Argentina next week with a team of astronomers and their telescopes. As we said, they'll attempt to measure 2014 MU69, this object in the Kuiper Belt, that the New Horizons spacecraft will then fly by in early 2019. Now let's head to Walsenburg, about two and a half hours south of Denver. It's known as the city built on coal, but it's trying to create a new identity beyond coal mining. CPR arts reporter Corey Jones found a contemporary art museum there is shaking things up. His story begins, though, at the local newspaper. The Werfano World Journal is on Main Street in Walsenburg. It's named after one of Colorado's oldest and poorest counties. This is our latest issue of the World Journal, which covers Huerfano, Los Animas, and Colfax counties. That's Mary Jo Tessator. She knows this town because she grew up on a ranch here, and now she's a features editor for the newspaper. She came back to run the family ranch after living in the Denver area for nearly 20 years. Most people who leave Walsenburg, Tessator says, don't return. She's seen a lot of changes here especially after the last coal mines closed in the 1950s. There was storefront after storefront that were empty. People were leaving in droves because it had always been based upon the coal economy and people just weren't sure what to do. Even today along Main Street, plenty of buildings sit vacant. Walsenburg has tried a number of things to boost its economy, like marijuana grow houses and tiny home subdivisions. But these have yet to pan out. So, Tessator says, this city built on coal has struggled to find a new identity. We have some pretty strong feelings as to, so who are we? Because we're still evolving. Many people here agree that the town has some crucial needs, like jobs, housing, and school funding. Tessator thinks Walsenburg has plenty to offer visitors, from its natural beauty and history to music festivals. The challenge is getting people to stay. And that is really where I see the future of the community, is these people coming in with great ideas. One block away, Brent Berger cuts out green and blue letters. This is Earth. It's very bold, and it'll be on this wall right here, so when you enter the museum... You will see right away the title of the show and the artists in the show. This is a contemporary art museum in downtown Walsenburg. The two-story building used to be a retail store. Berger opened Museum of Friends here in 2007 with his wife, Maria Cacciarelli. And every work of art in here is a gift from the artist, either to me or to Maria. And then once we started the museum... People start gifting the museum. Berger is from California. Cacciarelli's from New York. That's where they met nearly 30 years ago. Berger says Museum of Friends is a grassroots effort. He says the value of the art here comes from the personal stories behind each piece. This painting saved my life. 
Berger points to a work by his friend Arnold Wexler from New York. The canvas, with colorful curving lines, has slashes across the surface. The person I was living with at the time took a knife to this painting and just started slashing it. That could have been me. That could have been very easily. The museum's permanent collection has more than 600 works from all over, like pieces from Berger's family in Hawaii and some from Colorado. The walls are completely covered in paintings, drawings, and photography, with just a little white space between frames. On the main floor, curator Maria Cacciarelli says this Earth exhibition now happens every year. So I think in places like Colorado, having a show about the Earth is very important because we, out of all people, know the necessity of being good stewards of the land. It's this land that has drawn many artists to southern Colorado over the years. In fact, that's how Brent Berger got to know the area. He visited a friend from New York City who started a secluded artist community not far from Walsenburg. I drive up an endless dirt road to meet Dean Fleming. He started this community called Libre nearly 50 years ago. I made it. Yes, you did. Nice to meet you. Yes, nice day too, isn't it? Here, Fleming and other artists built homes that serve as studios and performance spaces. It's tranquil, with views of the Huérfano Valley and Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Libre is the Spanish word for free, and freedom is what artists came here for. But Fleming says this artistic community didn't make much of a ripple in Walsenburg. So when his friend Brent Berger wanted to start an art museum downtown... I kind of was discouraging. I said... Boy, you are coming into the rough place. Nobody's going to show up, you know. There was so little interest in that town. That was years ago. Now, Fleming says, Berger and Cacciarelli's patience is paying off. Cacciarelli says they felt pretty welcomed and supported when Museum of Friends opened 10 years ago. Then a lot of people and shops left, and it's been hard on the museum to lose those connections. Still... Cacciarelli hopes they can help revitalize downtown. I believe that the Museum of Friends is the destination. This is the reason that people will come here. But others say people will come for Walsenberg's coal mining history. Miners Plaza is right across from Museum of Friends. The small park has wooden beams that mimic a mine shaft. Mine carts hold planted flowers. And just up Main Street, there's another museum dedicated to the town's coal past. Gay Davis was born in the area and now co-owns a cafe downtown. She helped bring Miners Plaza to life. It just seems logical to latch on to that identity, expand on it, celebrate it, and understand how we got here. But, Davis says, Walsenberg should learn from the boom and bust of coal that this community can't rely on just one thing. Inside Museum of Friends, Maria Cacciarelli recalls growing up as a kid in New York and her first visit to the Brooklyn Museum. She says seeing and making art there had a profound impact on her. Cacciarelli says that experience made her realize how art can give people a voice. So what I do now here is basically replicate that experience for other people to have. That experience includes working with groups in the area, from schoolchildren to prison inmates. Meanwhile, the museum plans to renovate its historic building. It's more than 100 years old. And, with all that work ahead, Museum of Friends, Cacciarelli says, is here to stay. 
I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. And the Earth Exhibition at Museum of Friends in Walsenburg runs through June 17th. You can see photos at cprnews.org. Finally today, Denver musician Jesse Manley has spent the past few years writing music for the dance troupe Wonderbound, including for their production Dust, about the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. His songs reflect the folk and Americana music of that time. Manley and his band went on to record the music of Dust, which they released as an album earlier this year. We are hearing the song Bring Me Home. Dust and drought and barely breathing, Lord, bring me home. Bank that took my property, yeah, Lord, bring me home. I have seen the face of God, and the wind that covers up the sun. And I found my faith in that earth and loin. Some may say, end of days, for your sins atone. Faith will say that he's no good. Trust in ways I can misunderstood. Jesse Manley with his song Bring Me Home. I'm Brian Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. Fingers cracked and bleeding, Lord, bring me home. All my stock is dead freezing, Lord, bring 